Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 110. We're going to go through all seven verses. Let's dive in. A very well-known psalm quoted many times in the New Testament. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauties of holiness from the womb from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn, and he will not relent, that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand, and he shall execute kings in the days of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the place with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries, and he shall drink by, of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Psalm 110 is prophetic. It's messianic. It was written by David, and I've entitled uh, this morning's message, Christophanes, uh, which is just the uh, theological name for Old Testament appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's another term called uh, Theophilies, Theophilies, and uh, that's a reference to appearances also, um, but an example of that would be like the voice speaking out of the bush to Moses, where Christophany is actually a literal appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to um, um, give it some substance that uh, where we're going this morning, I want to show you from the New Testament that Jesus actually talked about this in the New Testament. So if you would, please turn with me to the 8th chapter of John, and um, we'll find one of those places where the Lord clearly talks about appearing in the Old Testament. By the time we get to John 8, it's getting really heated. It starts out, and they're trying to trap Jesus they don't know quite how to do it. So they figured they'd, they'd he, he, people knew he was hanging out with publicans and sinners. And, and uh, you know, the common Joe loved Jesus. They just followed him. And um, there was this woman who got caught in the act of adultery. And uh, the law said she had to die. But what would Jesus do? And so it was nothing more than a trap, and I'm not going to get into that part of the story, but that's how chapter 8 begins. It intensifies uh, the hostility of these religious leaders because they just can't corner the Lord, and they're trying to. So by the time uh, we get to the end of it, they're making accusations against Jesus, even saying that he's demon-possessed. And... um, and the Lord had fired back in verse 44. He says, you guys are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And so you can just sense that this is intense. And it's back and forth. And we finally get down to, let's pick it up in verse 52. And uh, they had had enough. So they come right out and say to the Lord, we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my words, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets that are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? You can almost feel the tone here and the attitude. And Jesus said, well, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet... You have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I don't know him, then I would be a liar, like you. <laughs> but, I do not, but I do know him, and I do keep his word. And they said, your father, and Jesus said, your father Abraham actually rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And uh, they looked at him and said, you're not even 50 years old, and you're telling us that you've seen Abraham? 
And then he said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice this in capital letters. Because in the Greek it's the ego amin, which is actually the title for the Lord God Almighty. And they knew it. And because he was saying that Abraham actually saw him, here Jesus himself is saying, yeah, I've been there, met the guy. And, um, and uh, even before Abraham was, I existed. And this would be the same as saying that voice that came from the burning bush, I am that I am. That's what's being said here. They understood it. And they took up stones to throw at him because as far as they're concerned, this is blasphemy. Now, I take you there for one reason. Jesus himself said he was in the Old Testament and saw Abraham. Well, I'm not going to have you turn here. I'm just going to quote two places. One is Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Chapter 18, verse 1, then the Lord appeared to him by the oak tree of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent of the door in the heat of the day, and they have a conversation. So he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there were three men standing by him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself down to the ground and said, my Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not Pass on by your servant. There's one example. Again, I've entitled this a Christophanes. That's what happens here. But there's even more, um, a stronger case for a Christophanes. And that would be with, um, in the book of Joshua. It's the night before they're ready to take Jericho. And in Joshua 5, verse 13, it says, It came to pass... When Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua said to him, Are you for us, or are you against us? And the answer came back, No. (laughs) It makes me laugh, because I'm thinking he didn't understand the question. Are you on our side or the other guy's side? He says, No. But... As a commander of the Lord's army, all right, here's the title. As commander of the Lord's army, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy, and Joshua did so. That's why every time, it's not an angel, because every time somebody falls down and worships an angel, they go, uh-uh, oh, 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 don't do none of that stuff. We are just servants of God, too. But here, just like from the voice in a burning bush speaking to Moses, take the sandals off. This is holy ground drawn. This is the same person. We call it a Christophanes. And um, uh, I wanted to lay just a little bit of that background before we go back and read. We're going to go through this chapter, verse by verse. So let's go back and with that much of an introduction, because that'll I'll come back to the Christophanes when I get to verse 4. Verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This psalm is remarkable because it sets forth the very uh, deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could not in any way consider this psalm and still deny Jesus' deity. It's referred to many times, and I'm not going to be able to go to all of them, that refer to it, but it's in the book of Acts, it's in the book of Hebrews. Um, It's one of the main themes in the book of Hebrews. But the example that I would like to use where it's quoted is, um, again, one of those times when they were trying to trap Jesus. And to find that one, we need to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. So if you'd make your way there, and again, they are trying to trick him with questions, and pick it up in verse 41. It says, when the Pharisees were gathered together, uh, Jesus asked them. Well, right up before, it said um, in verse 34, but the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. 
See, they're trying to trap him, <laughs> but every, try that, every time they tried, the Lord, uh, I, li- I like to say they, they were playing mind games with the creator of the mind. That's the way I like to put it. You know, he knows what you're going to say before you say it, and he, uh, they're, they're, you're in a no-win situation playing mind games with the creator of the universe. Good place for an amen, don't you think? So now, verse 41, the Pharisees were gathered together and because uh, he had shut up the Sadducees, and Jesus asked them, well, he says, let me ask you a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, well, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David called him Lord, how could he be his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, and from that day on, nor did anyone dare question him anymore. Ah, We give up. (laughs) We can't trick this guy. What's going on here and how the Lord put them in their place is notice that Jesus simply asked a very straightforward question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose, whose son is he? The Pharisees answered that he was the son of David. Upon hearing this answer, the Lord pointed them to Psalm 110 to show them their insufficient knowledge of that particular portion of Scripture, which the Jews interpreted it to be a messianic psalm about the Messiah. The psalm was written by David, and it shows Jehovah, the Father, talking to Messiah. David calls Messiah, my Lord. And any Jew who admits Messiah was David's descendant was faced with this psalm. When David calls Messiah his Lord and claims that he is superior, this shows that the Messiah would be more than just a king, more than a political leader, sitting upon a throne. Also, since David called him Lord in this psalm, how could he be his son? The Lord cannot be his son by natural birth. It had to be a supernatural birth. And this psalm is telling us that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was born of a virgin. To sum it up, this is basically saying, this is equal to God speaking with God. That's what we have in Psalm uh, uh, 110, when the Lord said to my Lord. It's also quoted one more place that um, I'd like to turn to, and that's in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's just flip over there quickly. I like these little sidetracks from the Old Testament when we're connecting dots because it brings us into other areas of doctrine. In this particular case, it's probably, uh, it's probably the main chapter uh, that has the, the teaching of the resurrection in the New Testament. I'm interested in the part where it, it talks about being absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Um, it's also... Uh, the chapter that uh, reveals uh, the mystery uh, towards the end. And uh, because I am going to refer to the rapture here, I want to talk about it. Paul says, everybody's going to die. And I'll tell you about my Aunt Luella's funeral a little bit later. But everybody's going to die, uh, except then when you look at verse 51, but I'm going to tell you a mystery. And the wording here is it's something that's going to be revealed for the first time. Uh, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, the trump will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. This is one of those verses that the church is being told for the first time there's one group of people, one generation, that's not going to go through the death process. They'll be changed that quick and we're out of here. Now, having read that verse, I want to go back to verse 20, because here we're talking about the order of the resurrection and the first fruits. I think a lot of people are confused about death and what happens. And, um, 
But if you read 1 Corinthians 15 carefully, I think it answers uh, the question, especially uh, to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, is to be present with the Lord. Now verse 20. But now Jesus has, is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It means dead, but you never die. It just means it's a term. Uh, for since by man came death, that would be Adam, by man also came the resurrection. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Now Stephen was the first martyr. When Stephen died, he looked up and there was the Lord standing and uh, we always see him sitting, right? Even in the psalm we're reading this morning. But when Stephen saw him, he said, I see Jesus, and he's standing. And, uh, and then they killed him. And uh, what happened next is he was welcoming him, in, him into heaven. When Stephen died on earth, he was welcomed in heaven. It was an instantaneous thing that happens at death. And so when we read first fruits, every person who died as a Christian, Jesus was the first one who was resurrected with a resurrected body. And Stephen would have been one of the first martyrs, and Christians have been dying ever since then. And the first fruits is an ongoing uh, event for believers, that when you die, you're with the Lord. And then it says this, and those who are Christ at his coming. Now, in my cross-reference here, it says 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 15 through 17. And if you read the whole chapter, that chapter is about the rapture of the church. And so I wanted to look primarily at 20 to 23 and just just comment on that. This is, in my opinion, a rapture verse, and it gives us an order that people are going to die, they're going to die, they're going to die, but there's going to be this one group of people that's going to be changed instantly to be with the Lord. All right, let's take verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, we're skipping over the, uh, the tribulation period to get to this point, and um, puts an end to all the rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. This is going back to Psalm 110, verse 1. When he says all things will put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who puts all things under him that God may be God in all. Let's go back to Psalm 110, verses two and three. Tells us the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, and he will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the days of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, and you will have the dew of your youth. And, um, you know, as we get together and we're talking about getting older and things we can do and couldn't do any longer just because uh, we're wearing out. That, that process is, is happening. One of the great things about, as believers, and uh, the ability to have this new body created just for heaven. We can't even, when you try to think about it, the Bible says forget about it. Because eyes haven't seen or ears haven't heard. Neither has it entered into my head or your head the things that God's prepared for you. And his hands are, 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 are pleasures and treasures forevermore. Think about that for a while. Paul got to take a, a peek about what it was like. He says, I can't. No, no words to describe what I heard. He didn't even talk about what he saw. It's just that there's, I love music, and there's many of you love music. We don't have any idea what music really sounds like, I think. And um, he says, I, I I can't do it. I cannot describe what heaven sounds like. Well, she got my curiosity. And um, 
verse two and three, that's what it's talking about. We're talking here about Jesus Christ ruling um, during this millennial reign out of Zion. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah chapter two. It says, many people will go and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. Well, the Lord sitting down and him giving us uh, a Bible study. I look forward to that one. And we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion, and that's what it says here in verse two, the strength of Zion, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the center of the government on earth. God does have a purpose for Israel in the future. Isn't it interesting that all that we're really watching on news right now, except for the terrorist attacks around the world, is uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, our own president, the change and shift in our policies, how he's getting sort of backhanded, and um, and now he's won re-election. We're talking about a little bitty state in the Middle East surrounded by Arab countries, but it's making news every single day. Gang, you need to know that this is a big-time signpost and that we're getting ratched up right now um, for Ezekiel 38 to unfold. Judy and I were up early yesterday morning, Saturday morning, and I was flipping around doing some research, and I ran across Jack Hibbs. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor in Chino Hills. And he says, well, I know I said we were going to do this study tonight, but I'm not going to. I can't. There's just too much going on in the world right now, and I need to stop and bring you up to date on what's coming down, because it's coming down. And he tried to prepare his flock there at Calvary Chapel Chinos and just let them know, hey, it's late, gang. Uh, Don't be ashamed or afraid of preaching the gospel. And I got to tell you, he was spot on as he went down and laid out a case um, why Syria is going to be taken out, why that's going to draw Russia down into the Middle East, why Lebanon's not involved, and why Saudi Arabia's not involved. The Bible talks about all these things. And... um, I remember just commenting, and I said, Jack's spot on. But he said, we'll we'll get back to our verse by verse, but I just got to take tonight and just let you know, be watching, make sure you're watching, because there's a whole lot going on. This is all, verse 2 and 3, are all future. It talks about what we have to look forward to. Jesus said, wherever your heart is, that's where your treasures are going to be. Colossians 3.1 says, if you're born again, then seek those things that are up there. That's where the dividends are. That's where we should be investing. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? That's the eternal. All right, let's get to verse uh, 4. And this is also highlighted. It said, the Lord has sworn he will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the conversation in verse 1 is continued. As the father talks to the son, he says, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, I need you to turn to Genesis chapter 14 at this point. And we don't have a whole lot given, only three verses that really talk about him in chapter 14. And... um, Let's pick it up. I'll give you the background. Chapter 14, verse 17 tells us that, and the kings of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley. Oh, that's not, is that? Yeah, here it is. Um, And the kings of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. And after his return from the defeat of uh, Chedorlaomer (laughs) and the kings who were with him. All right, he's basically returning from rescuing Lot. And he stops at verse 18, says, Then Melchizedek, he's the king of Salem, which would later be called Jerusalem, and he brought up bread and wine, and he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham gave him a tithe of all. Well, we're simply introduced to this guy. Not much said about him here, except that he brings to Abraham bread and wine. Now, there's a clue right there. And uh, I believe it is a picture of Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So first Sunday of every month, what do we do? We have communion. Why? To remember Jesus Christ, what he did for us on the cross. Um, And then basically it tells us that he was a king and a priest. Well, that wasn't allowed in the law. You could be a king or you could be a priest, but you couldn't be both. And then we're told, again, tithing. We learn much more about him in the New Testament, and that's where I'm going to have you turn next to Hebrews chapter 7, where much more detail is given to us about Melchizedek. All right, Hebrews 7, verses 1, 2, and 3. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, or king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. All right, now I have to stop. I've entitled this message this morning, A Christophanes. My personal conviction that Melchizedek is a Christophanes. Having said that, there are many, many good Bible teachers that would take exception and say the reference without father, without mother, simply means he wasn't part of the genealogical, um, in in the genealogies, his name was just left out. And you can make that argument, and I'm certainly not going to be dogmatic this morning if you don't see Melchizedek as the way I do as a Christophanes. Um, But what gets me is, without father or mother, you can make that argument with the genealogies, but neither beginning of days nor end of life sort of clinches it for me. But again, if you don't hold that view... Don't write me letters, don't get upset. You can have that view that it, it could be um, uh, just the king of Salem. But remember, when he came to Joshua, he didn't say, I'm the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, I was God the Father. He just said he was a commander of the Lord's army. That was his title there. Now, um, Paul, in this chapter, uses Melchizedek, to explain to the Jewish people, what are we reading? We're reading the book of Hebrews. And what's gonna happen here is there's gonna be what was so difficult for many of the Jews to become Messianic believers. And by the way, all the early church were Messianic Jews. And what Paul is doing in chapter seven is he's explaining that every priest in the priesthood, they would offer their sacrifices every single day. And um, you had to be a Levite in order to do that. But here, in verse 11, Paul is going to explain Psalm 110 in a different light, that Jesus is going to be a priest, but not after the order of the Levitical priesthood, but according to the order of this guy named Melchizedek. All right, verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people perceived the law. What further need was there for another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest. And after him, um, and after him was all the lineage that were of, of the tribe of Levi. Verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are written, 
belongs to another tribe which no man has officiated at the altar, referring to the Levites. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah. Jesus did not come from the tribe of Levi. He's a lion of the tribe of, say it out loud, Judah. Okay, so he doesn't qualify uh, according to the law. Um, And yet, far more evident in the likeness of Melchizedek, there, there rises another priest who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandments, but according to the power of everlasting life. Verse 17 now quotes Psalm 110. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And for, what, for on the one hand, there is the annulling, the annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. So when it was done away with, they used the term, it was annulled, that no longer exists. And it's being replaced, as we read farther down, with something that's far superior and far better. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope uh, through which we draw nearer to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, Okay, we need an oath. For they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, all right, here we're back in Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn, here's the oath, and I'm not going to change my mind. I'm not going to relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become sure Surely, here it says, a better covenant. So we have the annulling of one. Now, this is big business if you're Jewish. And understanding, hey, you can only, only a Levite can, can, um, can um, have this position. I've got to tell this story. I hope I remember where I, where I stopped here. But it's in the back of my head. And, and um, in our trip to Israel last year, um, I was with David Hawking, and um, I sit on a Moon Salim's board, and there's one other man um, on that board, a short guy, Jewish guy. Can't remember his name, and what he's famous for is translating the, the uh, German into Hebrew at Yad Vashem, which is the War Memorial Museum, in Israel. All the translation was done by him. And he met Bill Koenig. Um, Bill has been here several times. And uh, I, I'm anxious because David Hawking is telling me the story, but I want to I hear it from Bill. And um, he says, you know, Bill Koenig, that name, he says, when I was doing my research for Yad Vashem, I ran across four Koenigs. You know what I found out about them? They were all Jews. And what was happening in Germany, it was, if your name was Cohen, which is clearly sounds very Jewish, but if you change it to Koenig, that doesn't sound as Jewish. And he said, do you mind if I gave you a blood test? And he says, are you Jewish? And Bill says, I'm not Jewish, my wife is. And he says, well, can I do a blood test? And he says, yeah, go ahead. And he comes out, and David said, the guy came out white as a sheet. And he says, Bill, you are not only Jewish, but you are Cohen. And if you want to, we'll pay for you and your family to move to Israel, all expenses paid. What's happening now, because people want the temple rebuilt, what that will require is finding out who the Levites are. And they are DNA tests going on as we speak to bring about uh, the priesthood. So when the temple is rebuilt, uh, that, that'll happen. Isn't that a great story? Now I, now, I got, now I have to get back and remember where I was before. That's the danger of these sidetracks. The whole point of this chapter is if you're going to be a Jew and rebuild the temple, then you have to have Levites. And they've got to be Cohen. They have to be from the royal bloodline. And, they, and they, can figure, they, they can figure that stuff out. What Paul is explaining to the Hebrews is that when Jesus came, he wasn't from the tribe of Judah. That would make it difficult for any 
Jew to accept him as a high priest, as a, a mediator between God and man. But again, not knowing the scriptures, he won't be after the order of the Levites. He will be after the order of Melchizedek. Is everybody tracking with me? All right, let's finish it here. For such a high priest was fitting for us, verse 26, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, who has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for himself, um, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, Now, and this is important, for this he did once when he offered up himself. He's explaining to the Hebrews, no longer necessary are the sacrifices. Because when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. And he made one offering as a high priest, and he now continually lives, the Bible says, to make intercession for you and I. And uh, basically... He's a mediator. He's the go-between. First um, Timothy two verse five says, "There is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ." You know what it tells me? There's no other way you can get saved. There's no other way you can go to heaven. There's only one mediator between God and man who stands in the gap for you. All right. I've been promising for three weeks to talk about dual covenantism, and it keeps never coming up. So I'm going to take a moment and um, explain, first of all, what it is, because it does tie into our study a little bit here. But let me just read a paragraph that explains uh, the dual covenants. Um, Because of uh, their enthusiastic support for the Jews' biblical right to the land of Israel, some Christian organizations are willing to compromise the New Testament teaching that salvation is obtained through Jesus Christ alone. In order to show the Jewish people that they harbor no hidden agenda uh, through this support, they state that not only will they not uh, proselytize or witness to Jews uh, to be Christians, but that Jews do not have to accept Jesus as a Messiah in order to be saved. Such a heretical doctrine in Christianity because it strikes at the reason God sent his son to the earth in the first place. The teaching is known as two or dual covenant doctrine. The dual covenant uh, theological position states that the Jews have their own covenant relationship with God through Abraham and Moses, and therefore do not need to accept the new covenant or testament made through Jesus Christ. So, who believes this? Uh, Unfortunately, there are people who really love the Jewish people, but they've gone too far. Um, Probably the main guy out there is a big church in Texas with John Hagee. Uh, He teaches dual covenancy. Uh, Glenn Beck, um, a Mormon, <laughs> teaches it, but so does Pat Robertson. And you can have, you're going to have to do your own homework. Um, all of these people are supporters of Israel, but clearly in chapter 7, just what we've touched on here, Paul's explaining it. We're, we're annulling the one and we're adding another. Now to drive the point home even farther, I want you to turn to the book of Romans chapter Nine, and this is what was breaking Paul's heart. He's a Jew. Matter of fact, he said he was a Jew of the Jews. He says, nobody's more Jewish or kept the law more than me. So let's just read the first five verses of Romans 9, verse 1. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Paul, what's the problem? First of all, he says, I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth, that I'm in great sorrow continually. I'm bummed all the time. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ 
for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I would go to hell if it meant you guys could be saved. I sure love you guys a lot. Not that much. (laughs) Dylan's got a line in one of his songs that I ain't going to hell for nobody. But here, here's a man whose heart is being broken because he knows, says in John 1.11, he came unto his own and his own received him not. One of the only two times in the Bible Jesus wept is because when he came into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, he knew they would not accept him. He knew it. And, it, and he wept because of it. And um, let's continue on. For who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption? They were God's chosen people, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promise of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternal blessed God, amen. Now I'll just turn over to chapter 11. Again, if you want to do in-depth study on this, just sit down some afternoon and just read Romans 9, 10, and 11. I want to quote this uh, verse that I quoted earlier, the deliverer will come out of Zion and uh, Israel will be saved. But I want to go to verse 25 first because what I want to set out as we um, <clears throat> go through Psalm 110, I want to give you the order of events and how this is going to unfold, just like Paul did with the order of events of the resurrection. So chapter 11, verse 25, a verse I quote often. I do not desire, brethren, that you would be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinions, that hardening in part has happened to Israel. So Paul's sorrow is allowed by God. He's allowing this hardening of heart for a season for Israel, hardening in heart part to Israel, but then he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. We're talking about two different time periods. We're talking about, number one, the church age. And when the fullness comes in, that's a reference to the rapture. When that person gets saved, then what happens? Well, God always leaves a witness. My job um, as a pastor, according to Ephesians 4, is to teach this book, all of it, so that you will be equipped to do the work of ministry. So you want to give me an amen on that? That's what Ephesians 4 says. He's given some to be pastors, teachers, and so on and so forth. Um, some people today uh, don't believe there should be pastors uh, in churches. Well, um, I could go a long ways with that one, but just Acts 15, for example. There was a lot of discussion. What are we going to do with these Gentiles? Everybody had a say, and they were all elders. But when it came right down to who had to make the judgment call, James stood up and said, this is what we're going to do. The buck stopped with him. When you read the seven letters to the seven churches, the Greek word there is angelos, which means the pastor. The letter was written to the pastor. He was supposed to pass it on. So as we're here today, my job is to teach this to equip you so that you do the work of ministry. You know that many people in the world think, well, ministry, that's, that's the pastor's job. No, it's not. My job is to teach you this book to equip you so that's your job. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? That's what the Bible teaches. Is that, is that is all better you can do? I need a better amen before I'll give the rest of the Bible. You want, you want, you want more food? You've got to say amen. Thank you. I'll continue. The next, after we're gone, what does it say now in verse 26? Then all Israel will be saved. Okay, the blinders are taken off. Well, who takes off the blinders? Well, in Revelation chapter 11, we have two witnesses that appear and they have a ministry and now we're given time frames. Their ministry is for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. So imagine Moses and Elijah 
doing signs and wonders whenever they want to, and they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ along with 144,000 that are mentioned in Revelation 7. It's going to be, I was reading McGee, he said it'll be the greatest revival the world has ever known. And uh, there, there will be very, very few people in Jerusalem that will not be uh, not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this means. And so Israel will be saved. But that is yet future tense. Right now, the blinders are still on because we're still here. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away in godliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the Father. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And so I'll just leave that with that. I need to go back so that we can um, finish our last three verses. So let's go back to Psalm 110. And um, verses 5 through 7. Verse 5 says, The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in that day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the place with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. And he shall drink of the blood of the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up his head. All right, let's keep the chronology going. Um, By closing this morning, having you turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 16. What we just read in Psalm 110 is a reference to the battle of Armageddon when the Lord takes, and it mentions kings in particular. And uh, so let's continue with the order of events. We have the church age. We have um, the rapture of the church. We have the two witnesses who will witness for 42 months or the first three and a half years, the Antichrist will kill him, and um, yet the Lord still leaves a witness, and um, no, I just go back one chapter, chapter 14, That's, oh, it's not my notes, but I'm going to point it out anyway, um, chapter 14, picking it up in verse 6. Even after the two witnesses are killed, the Lord is still going to be witnessing. How? Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs and the water. God always has a witness. And people always have a choice about what they're going to do. Well, this is is right towards the end, sort of the last call, if you would. So if you're in chapter 16, verse 12, this is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, verses 5 through 7, when the Lord will execute kings and many dead bodies. Verse 12 says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the ways of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. These are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now this is the battle of Armageddon, and I could skip over verse 15. Let's just do it for now. And he gathered them together in a place called Hebrew Armageddon. So we know what's going on here, but what I want you to see, guys, is this right here. And um, I'll close with this verse because we're finished now with Psalm 110. If you have a red-letter Bible, how many of you do? Okay, notice that um, there's no red letters since chapter three. And all of a sudden, in the middle, right before the Battle of Armageddon, there's red letters. The red letters are for the church. So in other words, here's a message tucked in right before the Battle of Armageddon, 
And basically, Laura says, behold, I'm coming. I'm going to keep my promise. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he be naked and they see his shame. What does that mean? Well, it means that everything that's going on in the Middle East today, keep watching. Have a biblical perspective and be able to explain it to people as a witnessing tool. That's what we're told to do, to watch. And then it says, also, make sure you keep your garment. Well, what is that? Well, keep the faith. That's all it means. Don't give up. Don't turn back. Uh, That garment of righteousness that the Lord gives to those who are saved. And um, so keep watching and uh, keep the faith. Don't give up. Because eventually, if the Lord doesn't take us up at the rapture, you're going to die. This last um, Wednesday and Thursday, I drove up to Kadat, Wisconsin. That's where mom and dad came from. My uncle Roger died before he was 50. And uh, Aunt Luella lived to be 88. She worked in the bank for 31 years in Kadat, Wisconsin. And she's been retired now for quite a while. And um, we went up on a Wednesday night, got to visit some old cousins that I haven't seen for a while. And um, uh, it was in the Lutheran church where my mom and dad got married in. So I had all kinds of mixed emotions going on here. Here's the church that mom and dad was married in, now my Aunt Lo- Luann and Luella's uh, funeral is there. And I listened to the message, and um, I was impressed. The gospel was clearly presented. And um, um, I'm thinking, this, this is really, really good. And then he told this story, and I'll close with it this morning. My Aunt Luella had a friend who was afraid to die. And she says, Luella, are you afraid to die? And she says, absolutely not. She says, I gave my life to my Lord Jesus Christ. He's died for all of my sins. And when I die, I'm going to heaven. Well, that made my day. I had no ifs, ands, and buts about whether or not I'm going to see Aunt Luella again. Also found out my Uncle Roger was a Sunday school teacher. Didn't know that either. All that to say, she finished a course at 88, and she was loved by many that were there. And um, I got to sit there not wondering, did she make it or did she make it? She made it. Let's stand. We'll close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 110. And we thank you, as you are Lord of all, that you have plans of your own to set up your own throne. You've sworn an oath you will not relent, that the one who is continually going to make intercession for us is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there really is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. My prayer this morning would be for that person who is afraid to die and doesn't have that confidence. And Lord, the simple gospel is just that. It's so simple to believe that you loved us enough to die in our place, to be that priest that made that one-time sacrifice, and all we have to do is accept that provision. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning for anyone who's never made that commitment that today would be that day when they would open their heart to you and accept you as their personal Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.